The second book of the Bible is Exodus. You know that the word Exodus means a mass departure, an escape. So if Genesis means beginning, Exodus means leaving. Now, I know some of you have been thinking as we've started into this series, do I really need to know the Bible? I mean, do I really need to know these things? Can't I just live a good life? Well, I'll let you be the judge of that, but let me give you a couple things to chew on for just a moment. I don't know if you've paid much attention to the backdrop back here. Um, uh, I was just fascinated with it. The first time I walked in after the uh, media team had this new, what I think is a very contemporary-looking uh, stage design, I said, wow, what is that? And, and I got up, and they turned off the lights, and I walked up over there, and, and those are boards, just old, weathered, barnwood boards. They didn't cost us anything, but when you put it into that, the, the structure that they look like right now, it has a very contemporary look and feel. Some have got paint left on them. Some are, are missing most of their paint, but it's just a really unique thing. I thought, wow, something so old with such a contemporary look, and then it hit me. That's exactly what we're trying to do with this series to take something old and show its relevance. Because people are always asking the same thing about the Bible. How can something so ancient have such a contemporary application in my life? The longer I live, folks, the more I see God's timeless principles at work. And just because something is old doesn't make it irrelevant. And just because something is new and contemporary doesn't make it relevant to our lives. Let me, let me see if I can give you an example. Take a look at this picture this morning. On the, right hand, on the left hand side is, uh, anybody recognize what that is? It's an eight track tape. How many of you actually know what an eight track tape is in this service? Oh, okay, several of you do. That's good. I was expecting not so many. That was the very last eight-track tape produced in 1988. It's Fleetwood Mac's greatest hits. 19, that's only 25 years ago. That's not very far in the past. I can't think of anything more irrelevant than an eight-track tape right now in, in our history. Can you? And yet on the right-hand side is Lincoln's Gettysburg Address that is now 150 years old this very year. And I can't think of anything that speaks more plainly and boldly about who we are as a people. Will you allow me to read the last few lines of that powerful speech? We here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Can you think of anything more powerful or beautiful that describes who we are as a people and who our government is intended to be? Those words are as relevant as if they were penned yesterday. Not everything new is relevant. Not everything old is irrelevant. Consider the most famous words in the book of Exodus. Do you know what the most famous words in the book of Exodus are? You will in a moment if you can't think of them. Moses came down from the mountain summit with two tablets of stone. Carved on those tablets of stone were ten principles, ten commands of code of moral and ethical standards that has stood the test of time. In the book of Exodus, we find the words of the Ten Commandments. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me right now, and we're going to read these out loud together because this is, is probably the most famous passage in the whole book. You shall have no other gods before me. 
You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. You can be seated. Powerful words, relevant words. I'm convinced that if any culture or our society could learn to live by those 10 declarations recorded in Exodus 20, most problems would just go away. It would handle most of the issues and the concerns. Earlier I thought <clears throat> you might be thinking, I just want to live a good life. Well, here's how you live a good life. You put into practice the standards and the ethical principles that you find in God's Word. Apart from knowing God's Word, you don't know the Ten Commandments. Apart from knowing the Ten Commandments, you have a hard time living a good life with an ethical standard of how to treat your neighbor and how to honor God. These relational standards are as fresh today as if Moses had just brought them down from the mountain. And yet... And yet Moses very nearly missed the opportunity to be the one coming down the mountain. Moses very nearly missed the opportunity to be their rescuer, to lead the Israelites out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt. We could very easily be reading somebody else's name in the book of Exodus Day except for Moses. Do you know that? Let me lay some groundwork for the rest of this story. Last week we finished up Genesis. Genesis has a happy ending to it. Jacob's family has had this glorious reunion. They're going to survive the famine. Pharaoh, so indebted to Joseph, has extended an invitation to his family, his whole family, to come and live inside the Egyptian borders. And he's going to give them this place called Goshen, which was perfect for shepherds. Goshen was this lush and beautiful pasture land. They couldn't have been happier. I'm telling you, the story ends as great as it could end. The 50th chapter of Genesis could close with these words, and they all lived happily ever after. And that would have been true for about two centuries. But some 350 years passed between the closing verses of Genesis and the opening story of Exodus, and the mood has changed dramatically. We've moved from a beautiful story to a bitter story. The shepherds of Goshen have now become the slaves of Pharaoh. And you say, how in the world did that happen? Exodus chapter 1, verse 8 is the answer. It says, Then a new king who did not know about Joseph and all that Joseph had done for the people of Egypt came to power in Egypt. When one does not know and understand the past, it changes how he approaches the future, and it seldom is for the better. Have you noticed how quickly things change and the past is forgotten even around us in our own lives? I, I'm, I'm amazed with every passing year how many changes there are. Uh, for those entering college as freshmen this year, okay, these are some changes that have taken place. For those entering college as freshmen, there have always been blue M&Ms and never tan ones. Uh, for those entering college as freshmen this year, they have always enjoyed school memories with a digital yearbook. A tablet has never been a prescription medication that you take. They have never needed directions to anywhere, just an address to plug into their GPS. 
And they have always known that there are 525,600 minutes in a year. But they do not know the source of such terms as forbidden fruit, the handwriting on the wall, good Samaritan, or the promised land. You see, when we don't know God's word, it changes how we approach the future. And when we don't know God's word, it is never for the better the changes that we make. When Moses was born, his parents hid him because Pharaoh had ordered his soldiers to kill every newborn Hebrew male child. At the right time, they floated him down the Nile River in a basket, and the princess of Egypt herself found this crying Hebrew boy in the basket, raised him as an adopted son in the Egyptian palace. And when Moses became 40 years old, he sensed that God was leading him to deliver the children of Israel, and he rose up against an Egyptian master who was beating up a Hebrew slave, and Moses killed him. And when Moses did that, he became a wanted man, and he fled Egypt, and his personal exodus took him to Midian, where he married the daughter of a shepherd, settled down, and for the next 40 years tended the flocks of his father-in-law. It was shortly after his birthday cake lit up the Midian sky with 80 candles that everything changed for Moses. <clears throat> now, I think, I think Moses was dealing with a whole suitcase load of issues. I really believe that Moses was struggling with an identity crisis. I think he was confused about what he was supposed to do and who he was supposed to be. Was he to be an Egyptian prince or was he to be a Midian shepherd? Was he or wasn't he supposed to be a part of God's rescue plan? He was a good husband, a good father, and a good shepherd, but I think after 80 years of what in his mind was accomplishing nothing, he felt empty inside. You see, a person does that. You live your whole life and you look back and you think, I've done absolutely nothing. You feel empty inside. After 40 years of being a shepherd, uh, I think he was bored, folks. I mean, Moses was one of those highly educated men in all of Egypt growing up in the palace. And here he is watching sheep. Unless you got a lion or a bear that attacks the flock, it's pretty much the same thing day in and day out. You just watch them eat. That's boring work. When, when, Abraham's, or when Moses' son was born, he named his firstborn Gershom. Gershom means I have become an alien in a foreign land. Not, I found a new place to live. I have a brand new family that loves me. No, it's I have become an alien in a foreign land. That, that sounds to me like he's awfully homesick for Egypt. You too may be struggling with some identity crisis in your own life, thinking that life is passing you by and God hasn't used you yet. Any, any, you don't raise your hand, but are, any of you feel that way? Life has just gone by and, and I don't think God has used me yet. Can I remind you, first of all, that is an assumption. Do not assume that God hasn't used you yet. Just because you don't know how he's used you or you may not have visibly seen where you've been used doesn't mean that God isn't using you. You may never see it in this life. God may be using you in ways that you just can't imagine. You just don't know it yet. And second of all, would you please be patient with God? He spent 80 years getting Moses ready for the greatest adventure of the Old Testament. 
40 years in Egypt getting an education, 40 years in the wilderness living so he'd know how to lead people through. Hey, you can't get a better education than that for what Moses was going to do in this rescue adventure with God. He was going to go into Egypt with all the power of his knowledge, and he was going to lead these slaves through the wilderness with all of his experience. Do you feel unfulfilled, empty, bored? Do you feel like you don't fit in, like you're an alien in a foreign land, well then don't lose heart because God may be very much at, your li- at work in your life preparing you for a grand adventure that's just around the corner. You see, I think we need to learn what Moses had to learn. God's plans happen on God's schedule, not ours. And, and Moses himself wasn't the rescuer. God was the rescuer. Moses was just his partner in the process. And just when Moses was expecting his first Midian social security check, everything changes again. He's shepherding his flock on the far side of Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, and he sees this strange sight. He sees this bush that is burning. It's on fire, but it's not consumed. And and well, this is the way Exodus chapter 3 tells it. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight why the bush does not burn up. Now, let me pause there for just a second and remind you this. When you see something unusual or unique happening in your own life, would you check it out? Most of us would have said, huh, that's interesting. That bush is on fire, but it doesn't look like it's burning up. Come on, sheep, let's go find some grass. And we wouldn't have checked out what this unique, odd, unusual, sort of weird thing was that was going on with that bush on the mountain. How many opportunities have you missed because you did the very thing? You said, well, that's interesting. And then you go off and do something else. Have you ever thought about taking the unusual moments of your life and the ones that cause you to scratch your head and say, okay, is God at work in this moment? Check it out. Moses at least did that. It became the turnaround point for his life. Okay, let's pick up in verse 4. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, Moses called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. I have come down. God's the rescuer and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. God's the rescuer. But Moses became the means of that rescue, a partnership with God. Now, Moses is stunned. You'd think, wouldn't Wouldn't you? You'd think that when God says, I'm going to send you back to Egypt, Moses would have said, yes, I'm going back home. I'm going back to Egypt, that place where I grew up, that place that's so wonderful. And Moses does anything but. He, just, he, he reacts the opposite of what you would expect here. Like any mediocre guy, he begins to offer all kinds of excuses why not to go. Excuse number one, I, I'm not qualified. Verse 11 says, but Moses said to God, who, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? 
Now, Moses is overlooking a ton of things. He had the very best education of that day and time. He was a successful military leader when he had been back in Egypt. He was also a handsome man by worldly standards. But suddenly he sees himself as a colossal nobody. I don't think we can underestimate the inadequacy he felt following his failure. Remember, he had tried one time to be the deliverer, and it cost him 40 years in the land of Midian. Moses said, I tried that once. I'm not, I'm not doing that again. Ever feel that way? You, you failed at something? Maybe you failed at trying to serve God and make a difference, and you say, uh-uh, I'm not doing it again. I'm not going to bear that embarrassment. I'm not going to put up with that anymore. I tried serving God. It didn't work out no more. So you failed. Big deal. Every last one of us in this room has failed or will fail. If you aren't old enough to get there, you'll be there. That does not mean that you are incapable of success. Walter Brunel wrote, failure is the tuition you pay for success. Zig Ziglar put it this way, failure is a detour. It's not a dead-end street. Moses was focused on the impossible task for a man to do, but he was missing the fact that God specializes in impossible things. And if he had been focused on God instead of himself, he might not have made that conclusion. And so God responds to the excuse with these words. You won't be alone. God said, I will be with you. Do not forget, God never sends you on a job. God never gives you a mission to accomplish that you have to do all by yourself. He is always with you. Jesus said, and lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Excuse number two. Well, who are you anyway? Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what am I going to tell them? Now, Moses' first excuse centered on his own identity and lack of qualifications. His second excuse centers on God's identity, and in Moses' mind, his lack of qualifications. In a sense, he's saying this, well, who are you that the Hebrew people should trust you when you say you're going to rescue them? I think Moses can see this encounter with the leaders of the Hebrew slaves. He goes back down into Egypt, and he says, I'm here to rescue you. And they say, oh, yeah, really? You tried that 40 years ago. How'd that turn out for you, Moses? You're back to try again? What's different this time? And Moses said, well, this time God is with me. Oh, yeah, really? Who is this God? What God are you talking about? And Moses said, and what am I going to tell him if that's what the conversation is like? And it is here that God gives us an insight into his own personal character. Instead of just being the God of the universe, he said, okay, Moses, you want my name? My personal name? Here's my name. I am. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am sent me to you. Names are personal. They identify who we are as an individual. Have you ever noticed the change in your attitude when somebody that's close to you in the family is expecting a child and you keep talking about the baby, the baby, the baby, and then one day they announce, hey, it's a boy and we're going to name him John. Or it's a girl and we're going to name her Samantha. And you think, oh, Suddenly, your whole spirit changes, your whole attitude changes. This isn't just an, an unseen, unborn baby. This is John, my son John, my granddaughter Samantha. And all of a sudden, there's a great deal of personality that is wrapped up in that. The baby's still unseen and unborn, but the name just makes so much difference. 
This unseen God has a name, and his name is I Am. It speaks of his eternal, ever-present nature, never absent qualities. Poet Helen Malicote wrote this bit of inspiring prose simply entitled I Am. You've heard it before, but it is so powerful. Will you let me read it to you again? She writes, I was regretting the past and fearing the future. Suddenly my Lord was speaking. My name is I Am. He paused. I waited. He continued. When you live in the past with its mistakes and regrets, it is hard. I am not there. My name is not I was. When you live in the future with its problems and fears, it is hard. I am not there. My name is not I will be. When you live in this moment, it is not hard. I am here. My name is I am. That very name, that personal name of God gives great insight into when Jesus in his earthly ministry would say things like this. I am the good shepherd. I am the living water. I am the bread of life. And once when he was talking to a, Jewish, a group of Jewish uh, students, he said this, before Abraham was, I am, declaring that he is God in the flesh. Excuse number three. Well, what if they're skeptical? Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord didn't appear to you? Now, I want you to notice these are words not of trust, but of worry. What if words are always words of worry and not trust? Well, what if I don't pass my driver's license? What if I don't graduate college and get a good job? What if I don't find a good spouse and live to, to an old ripe age uh, with somebody else? What if I don't get Social Security by the time I retire? What if, what if, what if, what if? Those are all words of worry. Our God is not a God of what ifs. So when you talk to him, don't speak in what ifs, because God is not a God of the what ifs. And so God says, you know, basically says, Moses, you, uh, you deliver the message, I'll do the convincing. And, and then the, the, the text goes on to describe this conversation between God and Moses. And God said, what's that in your hand? He said, what's well, a staff? And he said, throw it on the ground. And he does, and it immediately becomes a snake. And the Bible says, Moses ran. Now, this is a statement of his brilliance. He ran from the snake, all right? It's probably a cobra, might have been a spitting viper, but it would have been a, 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 a nasty snake of that day and time. And then God says, you pick it up by the tail. And so he does, and it becomes a staff again. Now, if that was the only sign God gave Moses, and if I had been in the front row of the Hebrew gathering when Moses got there, and he'd have thrown the staff on the ground and it had become a cobra, I would have either been convinced or dead. I'm not sure which, but it wouldn't have taken any more signs for me to believe than that. But God said, you're going to have a tough crowd, so, so do this too. Don't, don't just do the staff. He said, put your hand inside your robe and pull it out. And Moses did, and it was gnarled and eaten away with leprosy, which was a life-fatal disease communicated by touch. And he said, put it back in your robe, and he pulled it out. It was healthy and well and strong. And those two we remember, and then God says, but Again, if they don't believe, if you've really got a tough crowd, he says, you go get some water out of the Nile and pour it out on the ground and it'll become blood. Sound familiar? It was the first of the plagues that God would level upon the Egyptians in order to release and rescue his people. So Moses went back 
armed with the power of God. Can I remind you that God is capable of doing anything? And you say, but he didn't answer my prayer. Can I tell you this morning that God has not answered every prayer that I've ever prayed the way I wanted him to answer it? He answered it. He just said no. He didn't even say maybe. He said no. And sometimes when I pray, God is silent. I don't know what that means. I just know that sometimes I don't get the answer that I'm looking for. And I've lived long enough to retrospectively look back and to see that some of the things I asked for were the wrong things to ask for. And I'm glad he said no. Can I suggest to you that God doesn't not answer your prayer to be harsh, but as a loving father answers it what is best for us, even when you're skeptical, even when you want to make an excuse. Trust God to answer on your best need. Excuse number four, don't, I don't talk so good. Moses said to the Lord, oh Lord, I have never been eloquent neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. I do not know what that means. I don't know if Moses had a stuttering issue. I don't know if he had a lisp. I don't know if he just couldn't speak. Clearly, we're not told. We do know it was some kind of a speech impediment, at least in Moses' mind. And God's response is basically this. Moses, I created you. I can heal you. I made your mouth. I can make your mouth work right. Now, go. Have you ever said to the Lord who made you, I'm not made good enough to serve you? That's a pretty dangerous thing to say to the creator, isn't it? When Moses had exhausted all of his wimpy excuses, the true reason surfaced. The the truth of the matter was Moses just didn't want to go. And he was making up all these excuses why he shouldn't go. And finally he gets down, he has no more excuses. And he finally says to God, find somebody else. And by that time, God was angry. And who can blame him? God's got a job to do. Moses knew what, how important the job was. And God says, I, I want to partner with you. And he says, you go find somebody else. Fortunately, Moses reconsidered and went, and the rest is history. Now, in, in all my years of ministry, I've heard all the excuses. I'm not smart enough, or I'm not talented enough, or I'm not winsome enough, or physically able enough, or emotionally strong enough, or spiritually devoted enough to God to serve Him. If I had more time, if I had more education, if I had more charisma, if I had more motivation, I'd serve God. Hogwash. You wouldn't do any such thing. Those are all poor, lousy, wimpy excuses. God doesn't call us to make excuses. God just calls us and challenges us to follow him. If God got angry at Moses' excuses, do you think he'll get any less angry at ours? I would, ex- I would ex- suggest to you this morning that we stop making excuses and just make good on the promise to love and follow him because when you became a Christian, that's exactly what you did. You made a promise to love and follow him. No excuses. Remember, no one is too good or too bad or too ugly or too far gone for God to use. A a few weeks ago, uh, Dan Robbins was in our uh, 930 service. He sat right back here in this section, and I met Dan after the service. Uh, Quite a remarkable young man. A few years ago, Dan lost both of his legs in a motorcycle accident. And, And today, Dan runs races. And he runs on blades. And I'm here to tell you, he could outrun me without even trying. He could probably outrun most of you in here this morning, unless we have some from the uh, IU cross-country team in our midst. They might be able to give him a good challenge for what he does. He's also on the Florida Sled Hockey Paralympic team. 
I mean, I, I look at this guy and I just marvel. He's missing his legs and accomplishing more than most of us with complete bodies. He travels throughout the country talking about how God is using him and giving his testimony of faith. And I'll ask you again, what is your excuse for not making a difference with what God has given to you? Moses left the burning bush a changed man. He did his best, and he served his best with God in this grand rescue of the Old Testament. I guess my question is, will you leave here this morning a changed person? You may not have seen a burning bush, but you need to answer this burning question. What excuse do I keep offering to God for not living 100% for Him? How can I do my best to serve Him with my life? Kathy Rigby was a member of the U.S. women's gymnastic team during the 1972 Olympics in Munich, Germany. And like most Olympians, she had one thing in mind, and that was to bring home the gold medal. And so on the day of her gymnastics performance, she prayed that she'd just do her best, and she did. She had a great routine, but when the names were mentioned and the winners were announced, her name was not among them. Kathy was crushed. By the time she got to where her parents were in the stands overlooking the gymnastic apparatuses on the floor. She just could hardly choke out the words. I'm sorry. I did my best. Her mother squeezed over, put her arm around her and said, you know that, I know that, and I'm sure God knows that too. And then Kathy said her mother added 10 words that changed her life. Words that she's never forgotten. Her mother said, doing your best is more important than being the best. Wow. That's all God ever asks of us. You know, I'll never be a Moses. God isn't asking me to be a Moses. You'll never be a Moses. God isn't asking you to be a Moses. All he's asking of you and me is that we do our best. No excuses. No what ifs. Just our best. And that will be enough in the hands of the great I am.